If you will, take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 32. If you need a Bible, there should be a black hardbound Bible somewhere nearby in the pew, and Exodus 32 is on page 72 of that Bible. In just a moment, we'll read the first 14 verses. I just wanted to make you aware of a couple of things as you're turning. Uh, Tonight, the first Sunday of the month, is a great time in the life of our church as we remember the Lord's death through communion, but also as we gather on the first Sunday evening of the month to pray together for one another and for uh, our congregation. Um, Also, uh, pre-COVID, we used to take a benevolence offering on the first Sunday of the month physically. You can still give that, and and the Lord has really blessed the giving to that uh, fund as it's now online, or we have kiosks out there that you can uh, give through. Just make sure your check, if you write a check, is clearly marked for that. Um, But that fund is important because we use it to help one another through some of the harder financial times in life. And so those of us whom God blesses financially, we ought to give to help others. Um, The other thing that I'll mention, if you're a member of Gray Road next Sunday, uh, three important things. One is that we, you should have a form in your mailbox, if you didn't get it already, to nominate deacons that we will elect for beginning in January. Secondly, there should, there's another form to affirm new, uh, the members of the missions team in there. And third, there was an issue brought up regarding missionary support in our members meeting last Sunday evening that we will need to have a very brief uh, members meeting after the service next Sunday in order to handle that, all right? So I'm sure you got all that. That was very fast listening. If you missed all of that, then just remember what the Bible says, all right? So let's uh, turn to Exodus 32. I'm going to read verses 1 to 14. And then we'll pray and see how the Lord might speak to us through his word. This is what the Spirit says. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. 
They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you." But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Let's pray together. O God, our Father, we come to You to hear from You through Your Word given by inspiration of Your Spirit, Your truthful Word, Your authoritative Word, Your sufficient Word. We pray that in coming to it, And hearing it, it will be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, a correction to our waywardness and encouragement to our faithfulness. We pray that by your Spirit we will understand what it says and we will respond in faith and obedience to it. For there is no other way for us to be happy in Christ Jesus than to trust you and your word and to obey you and your word. And so we pray that that will be the end to which your word works today. For Christ's sake, amen. We all want mercy. Nobody wants to work for a merciless boss or sit under a merciless teacher. Some people actually brag about being merciless in their negotiation tactics or in their arguing style or in sports. There was actually a linebacker with the last name, Merciless, in the NFL. But nobody actually wants to be on the receiving end of merciless people because we all want mercy. More than that, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ commands us actually to be merciful as the Lord has been merciful to us. It's interesting as some people come to the Bible, they they'll tend to say they they like Jesus and the New Testament 
more than the Old Testament. You know that God in the Old Testament, He's, he's like an all-powerful tyrant, it seems. He's always punishing. He's always ready to zap people and flood the world and send plagues and pounce at any moment. But God seems to lighten up in the New Testament. He's a kinder, gentler sort of God. In the New Testament, God is love and, and, and merciful and ready to forgive. That's the God, that's the God that I want. And maybe that's how you've thought about God. Maybe that's the kind of distinction you've drawn in your mind. But the interesting thing is that the more that you read the Bible, the more you see that's not right. Because yes, God is a judge. Yes, God punishes sin. But not only in the Old Testament. Also in the New Testament. And actually, uh, uh, the mercy that we want, mercy from God, isn't limited to part of the Bible. It's in all of it. It's in Exodus chapter 32 to 34, which are the chapters we're going to cover today. In these chapters, we actually see both God's judgment and God's mercy. The mercy that we want, the mercy that we need is the mercy that God shows in these chapters. And so I want us to think about this. It may be that in, all, in your Bible reading recently, there's, there's no more relevant chapters than these three. Maybe where you are in your life, maybe how you've been thinking about God, maybe how you've been trying to relate to God, maybe, just maybe, you've gotten it wrong, and these chapters will help you get it right. Maybe you've just sort of tolerated the idea of God, and maybe you'll see Him differently today. I hope that's the case. And so I want us to think about these three chapters just under two basic headings. The first one is this, we need mercy. Now, as a dad, I have often told my children that need is a strong word. And very often, it is the wrong word. So it's, it's the wrong word when it comes to things like dessert, okay, or money for Kona ice, or toys, you know, and that's actually true whether they're kid toys or adult toys. Need is the wrong word very often when it comes to a bigger house. Need is the wrong word when it comes <clears throat> to your approval. I just need you to approve of me. Need is actually also the wrong word when it comes to feeling respected by you. I need to feel respected. But when it comes to mercy, need is the right word. We need mercy. 
We need mercy. And these chapters show us that we need mercy for two basic reasons. The first is because of our sin. We need mercy because of our sin. In Exodus 32, uh, the Israel is encamped below the mountain. Moses is up on the mountain, and he's been gone a while, and the people are getting uncomfortable. They're getting quite antsy. They're wondering, where is he? How exactly are we supposed to connect to God without him? He may never come back, so we need something we can touch, something we can see in order to relate to God. Aaron, do something about this. And this is where the golden calf is made. Now, friends, I want you to think about all that these people already have from God. They have God's words. It's been passed along from one generation to the next about God's power in creation, about God's judgment in flooding the world, about God's call on Abraham, God's faithfulness to keep His promise to to give Abraham a son, The, the, the story of how God saved His people through Joseph being imprisoned in Egypt. They even have his law that Moses has already written down for them. They don't have the stone tablets yet, but he wrote it all down. They know what it is that God wants of them. But that's not all they have. They don't just have God's words. They have God's deeds. They have the Passover in their memory. They have the plagues in their memory. They have the parting of the Red Sea in their memory. They see manna every morning to feed them. They hear thunder and see lightning and see fire and see cloud on the mountain. They have so much, but it's just not enough. We need more. More than God's already given them. They actually want what the world has. Other nations have idols to represent their gods. And so what Israel does is adopt the mindset of the world. Aaron, make us gods that will lead us. Make us gods that will take care of us. Make us gods to represent this God that we know. And friends, in our sinful condition, we adopt the world's mindset as well, don't we? In fact, the Apostle Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2.2. He said, we were following the course of the world. Just following right along. Walking in lockstep with the ways of the world. But do you know what's worse? You know what's worse than just that? They adopt the world's ways and tack God's name onto it. In verse 5, look at chapter 32, verse 5. You're going to need to keep your Bible open because they're going to do hand exercises, you know, back and forth and back. In chapter 32, verse 5, I mean, after the people have already said, these are the gods who brought us out of Egypt, notice what Aaron does in verse 5. He builds an altar to it. And then he makes a proclamation. He says the next day is going to be a feast to God. The Lord. 
He doesn't use a generic name for God. He doesn't use a generic word. If you're looking at it in English, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is the covenant name of God. He said, we're going to, look, we're going to sacrifice to it, the golden calf, and we're going to have a feast to it. Who is it? Well, this is Yahweh here. This is the Lord. They have a, this is, this is mind-blowing. They don't just run to the world. They run to the world and say, God sent us. God is okay with what we're doing. And then when Moses does come down the mountain, look at verses 17 and 18. He's talking with Joshua. Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted. He said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. And then 32, 18. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. You know the last time you saw singing? On the banks of the Red Sea. They once sang to God, and now they're singing to gold in the name of God. Do you see how awful that is? Friends, they adopt the world's name way and they call it God's and so do we. We adopt the world's view of success, don't we? That is seen in our money or in our possessions or in our position or in our influence or in the fact that my political party won or whatever it is. And then you know what we do? We slap God's name on it. Friends, if after Tuesday, if after Tuesday there are wiser or more just leaders in any given position, that is a merciful gift of God. We would not be getting the leaders that we deserve if we were to get better, wiser, more just leaders. And we do that, don't we? We adopt the world's view of love. Well, love is just something that happens to you. You can't help who you love. Love is just love. And then we say, God approves of it because it's love. And He is love. We adopt the world's view of self. When I think of myself, what I think of myself, whether it be about my gender or my worth or whatever, we believe that this is the key to a good life. And then we add God's name to it because he wants me to know and love and enjoy who I am. But even more than that, we put it in books and we just say, well, you know, that's not quite good enough because we want to be pretty specific. So God wants me to know and love and enjoy who I am in Christ. So let's just put Jesus' name on it. Me feeling better about myself. We adopt the world's way of solving problems, don't we? Problems with other people. We're going to get loud. We're going to get angry. We're going to get revenge. We're going to refuse to forgive and then add God's name to it because God knows I deserve better than that kind of treatment. Or we adopt the world's way of solving problems within ourselves, don't we? 
We normalize things like worry, anxiety, depression. These are just normal things. We treat we can treat problems of the soul with with things that if we were to think about it don't make sense. We treat problems of the soul with food. We treat problems of the soul with what has been dubbed retail therapy. If I just go out and spend and get more things, I just need a new house. I just need new stuff. I just need another pet. I just need another this, another that, another that, another that, another that, and it all just goes down the vacuum because it's not addressing the problem of the soul. We respond to problems of the soul with sexual sin. We respond to problems of the soul with alcohol because we just want the pain to be numbed. We'll even address problems of the soul with prescriptions. In all of these things, we think that doing something physical will address what is spiritual. And so, we tack God's name onto it. Now, certainly there are more. But part of what's happening here in the golden calf scene is that the Lord's name is being used as if it's worthless. It's being used in vain. Not only are they making an image, they're using the Lord's name in vain. You see, taking the world's way instead of God's way is sin. Taking the world's way instead of God's way and then tacking God's name onto it is especially sinful. It's why we need mercy. And the whole thing is we're stiff-necked about it. That word, that phrase, stiff-necked people, is used multiple times in these three chapters. We have... uh, We have a new dog in our home, Zoe. Zoe's a very sweet dog, a very energetic dog. Both energetic and cuddly is this dog. But she's not a good walker. Like you take Zoe on a walk, she just, squirrel, you know. I mean, that is Zoe right there. And she goes and you hold on for dear life. And you pull the way that you want, but Zoe wants, she is hardcore committed to going the way that she wants, pulling against the leash. You know what that is? It's being stiff-necked. That's us. We yell squirrel and run after anything and everything that the world has to offer, thinking that somehow it'll satisfy our soul. That's why we need mercy. That's why Israel needed mercy. Also, we need mercy because of God's judgment. God is holy. He is a God who is good and righteous, and He will condemn sin, punish sin, and He will not stand for His name being tacked on to idolatry 
to sin. So he says in chapter 32, verse 14 to Moses, Therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now, as the chapters progress, we see God's judgment expressed in a few ways. The first is in death, in death. Look at chapter 32, beginning in verse 25. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Can you imagine that scene? This group of men with swords on their side, 3,000 people dying at the sword because of the sword as an expression of God's judgment. This is not easy to just wrap your mind around. Don't just fly by that. But you should think about it because even though it's difficult to imagine, it should not surprise us. Because three different times, this same nation stood before the Lord and said, whatever you say, we will obey it. Chapter 19, verse 8. Chapter 24, verse 3. Chapter 24, verse 8. And then in chapter 24, there's this ceremony to seal the promise. Blood is shed and blood is sprinkled on them. And it's a picture of the fact that they will obey And disobedience will bring their blood. I wonder how many people in the camp in chapter 32 here are thinking back on that day and the promise they made to trust and obey the Lord. Second expression of judgment is there at the end of chapter 32 in the plague. Uh, Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Those phrases at the end are important because Aaron is not the only one to blame here. The fact that he fashioned the idol and nobody else picked up the tool to fashion the idol. I mean, this sounds like a couple of kids, right? Like a couple of kids are going to go do something and one of them did all the heavy lifting. Like one broke the thing and then one did the other thing and it was all the same one and the other was like, I didn't do anything. I mean, I said it was a great idea. I went. I showed my support because I love my brother. But he did it all. And the Bible is just making very, very clearly that it's not just the one who fashioned the idol. It's the one who wanted the idol. Wanted it. They made it. In Ezekiel, God says that you set up idols in your heart. That's what the people had done. The actual making of the idol was just an expression of what was already in their heart. And then thirdly, God's judgment is seen in his absence. 
in his absence. Look at chapter 33, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, and you and the people whom you have brought out. So all the yous, he's not telling them my people or who I brought out. He's saying the ones you brought out of Egypt. Whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. You see, even though God will send his angel... Even though they will have victory, even though they will have the land, they won't have him. It could be an indication that what God is saying is, Moses, you know that tabernacle we were talking about up on the mountain that you haven't told the people about yet? We're not doing that anymore. I'm not going to dwell on I would, I would consume them all. Because this is his angel. This is his In some sense, it is his presence going with them, but in a very real sense, it is also not the fullness of the goodness of his presence, his grace going with them. They'll still have the land, but they won't have him. Let me ask you something. I want you to think about someone that you've lost. Just think about them. You got them? What if I told you you could have everything they could ever want to give you or you could have them? Which one would you want? Them. Every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Right? Martin Lloyd-Jones said of this, to be given every other blessing is of no value if God is not with you. What value, what is the value of Canaan if God was not with them? Death, plague, absence. Friends, God's judgment still looms large today. And at times, God allows temporal judgments in our lives, suffering in this life because of our sin in order to show us the seriousness of our sin. But a greater judgment, the Bible teaches, is coming. The wages of sin is death, meaning an eternal death. Sin, the Bible says, separates us from God, from His grace, from His love. It is fatherly absence forever. God's greater judgment is eternal conscious punishment in hell. That looms today. It is not a fairy tale. It is not a scare tactic by some people. It is the reality which awaits those whose sin remains and goes unforgiven, who have no forgiveness, who do not know mercy, who do not know grace. Hell is all that awaits There isn't a wink and a nudge by God saying, hey, you know that eternal punishment thing? I was just kidding about that. Come on in. That is not the case whatsoever. 
The book of Revelation speaks of the smoke of torment going up forever and ever, a lake of fire forever and ever. These are serious and sober things to consider. That's why we need mercy, because that's what we've earned. That's what we deserve. That's why we need mercy. And here's the interesting thing about need. Need is both a fact and an experience, isn't it? Human beings need food. Fact. You are hungry. That is where the facts have invaded your experience. And you feel the facts. You know, you know the facts because you've read the textbooks, but then you know the facts because your stomach is rumbling, right? You see, you may see that the Bible says that you need mercy, but actually that's not enough to get it. The fact of our need for God's mercy must invade our experience. Do you feel the need for mercy? Are you hungry for mercy? These people are. Right after that text, look what happens. Chapter 33, verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one, no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. Now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. What happens is that they hear that the Lord is not going with them. They've seen the death. They've felt the plague. They know He's not going, and they mourn. This is godly sorrow, not just because they feel it, but because they do something. They don't just feel. They act. They throw off everything. The same kind of gold that they once rebelled with, against God with, they now leave behind. This is Repentance. There is nothing they won't throw off. My question for you, friend, is what is it that keeps you from following Jesus? What is it that you're not willing to lay down? You're not willing to leave it. You're not willing to walk away from it. Because the call of Jesus Christ is leave everything and follow me. Nothing else can have your attention like he can. Nothing else can demand your allegiance. Nothing else can be a substitute for God, even if you tack God's name onto it. What will you leave behind? What do you need to leave behind? Maybe the fact is, is that there's a very real threat that if you come to the Lord Jesus, you will be left behind by people, people you love, people you would not want to lose. But following Jesus will mean losing them. Maybe you'll be blackballed by your family. Maybe you'll be fired from your job. Maybe you'll be cut out of your friend circle. But what is it that you're willing to lose to gain Jesus? If there's something you're not willing to lose in order to follow Jesus, that's where you found your God. If you have everything, 
but don't have Jesus, you have nothing. And if you have nothing, but you have Jesus, you have everything that you need. You must believe that. And once you really know that you need mercy, you will be willing to lose whatever it takes to get Jesus. We need mercy. But these chapters also tell us that God gives mercy. God doesn't give Israel what it truly deserves. He has pity. He shows compassion. He doesn't wipe out the whole nation. Chapter 32, verse 14, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing. God renews his commitment to be with his people. Chapter 33, verse 14, he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God renews his covenant with the people. That's what starts in chapter 34, verse 10, all the way to 28. And all of that text has echoes, echoes of the Passover, echoes of the Ten Commandments, echoes of the Book of the Covenant. The same God who had worked among them will work among them still. The same God who made promises will still keep his promises God shows mercy at every turn here. Everything that they could possibly mess up, God's mercy meets in a way that overcomes it. But why? Why would God show mercy? These chapters answer that question. God shows mercy first because of His sovereign choice. Look at chapter 33, verse 18 and 19. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, Moses' request is not just for himself. He's not just like, I just really want an experience of God. No, in the context, he's been pleading with God to stay with them. Even when God says he will, Moses keeps pleading. And then this request comes, as if to say, just give me some just assurance that you will be with us. Show me your glory. And so in doing that, in, in answering... God says this incredible thing, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It is a reminder that Israel being God's people was God's choice. God chose Abraham. God gave him a son. God expanded his family. God made them a nation. It was all of God. Now, Paul picks this verse up in the New Testament, and it applies, us, applies it to us as believers in the Lord Jesus. In Romans 9, he mentions this, and then he draws this conclusion. So then, it, meaning God's sovereign choice to save, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In other words, no one forces God to do anything. 
No one has leverage over the creator of the universe. No one can twist his arm. When God gives mercy, it is because he chooses to. Now, friends, that is both humbling and encouraging all at the same time. It is humbling because it reminds us that we are dependent on Him, that we're not the masters of our own destiny, that He is, that our lives and our futures in a very real way are in His hands. But it's also encouraging. (laughs) Because you can't wander so far that His sovereign mercy can't reach you. You can't fall so deep into dark and hidden places that His sovereign mercy can't find you. That's what keeps us praying for others, isn't it? For our friends, our children, our parents our siblings, our co-workers, those who don't know the Lord Jesus. Do you know why we keep praying? Because we know that God's sovereign choice to show mercy is more powerful than their choice to rebel. Isn't that your hope for your lost friends? Surely it's not just that they'll somehow get smarter or figure it out or become more moral or whatever it is. There's no hope in that. That's like getting on a treadmill thinking you'll go to California. You're going nowhere. It doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who gives mercy. He gives mercy because of his sovereign choice. Secondly, he gives mercy because he is merciful. When God does give Moses a glimpse of himself, he also speaks. Look at chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So yes, God is not a God who will simply just pardon iniquity, who just kind of overlooks sin, who just wink his eye at it. He will take note of it and he will judge, but he is also the God who forgives iniquity, who forgives transgression, who forgives sin. He is merciful. These character traits of God stick in the souls of Israel. This language comes up over and over again in the Old Testament. In 2 Chronicles 30, Hezekiah pleads with the nation of Israel to repent on the basis that this is who God is. God is gracious and merciful. In Joel chapter 2, Joel pleads for repentance using this same exact language, making the same call for repentance. Jonah... (laughs) 
Remember why Jonah is so upset? Jonah is so upset because God shows mercy to Nineveh, and this text in, Deutero- in, in Exodus chapter 34 is stuck in Jonah's heart so deep that he knows that this God will show mercy, and he doesn't want God to show him mercy. In Nehemiah chapter 9, Nehemiah pleads with God to act. Why? Because of this is who it is. This is who God is. And Israel sings of this God all the time in Psalm 86 and Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 and Psalm 116 and Psalm 145 and Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities." The merciful character of God pervades the entire Bible so that any sinner who knows the weight of their sin can bow down with the treacherous outcast tax collector and pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you feel the weight of your sin? Is your heart broken by it? Friend, if you will pray this way, not by a mere matter of formula, but in sincerity of heart, if you pray for God's mercy, you will find a God who gives mercy. God gives mercy because he is merciful. God also gives mercy because of his mediator. Because of his mediator. Israel has a mediator in Moses. We've talked about that in a couple of different uh, studies. But chapter 33, verses 7 to 11, give us this portrait of Moses going to God regularly to the tent of meeting, interceding on behalf of the people outside the camp, And as you read chapters 32 to 34, here's one thing you'll note. Every step of the way where God shows mercy, Moses is right there. Moses is at first rejected by the people. In chapter 32, verse 1, when they say, as for this Moses, that's a phrase of derision, of contempt. He's no good to us. Moses shares in God's righteous anger. He comes down the mountain and he breaks the tablets. Moses intercedes for God's people. In chapter 32, verses 11 and 12, he pleads, why would you do this? Because the Egyptians are going to brag about it. Why would you do this? Because you have made promises. He goes to God as mediator, praying for God's people praying that God will show them mercy. Moses, in chapter 32, at the end of 32, offers for himself to be blotted out of God's book in place of the people. So in uh, 32, verse 31, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive them their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses advocates 
for God to forgive his people. After God reveals himself and his character in chapter 34, we often stop with verse 7, but look at verse 8. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance." And even though he was rejected at first, he shines with glory in the end. Chapter 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, And Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them that all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded... The people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with them. Now, you could take a much deeper dive on all that Moses does in these three chapters. But here's the fact. Without Moses, God doesn't show mercy. It is an answer to his prayers that God shows mercy. It is because of his work that God shows mercy. Moses, in effect, stands between Israel and destruction. And if he's not there, Israel is wiped out. I mean, he's a great mediator. He is. It shouldn't surprise any of us that Moses is so highly esteemed, even today, among Jews, right? He is a great mediator. Apart from him, they would surely die. And yet today, there is one greater than Moses who stands between us and God, between us and destruction, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus came to the world, John 1 tells us he was rejected. The world didn't know him. He didn't merely offer to be blotted out of God's book. He died for us. To bring us forgiveness. On the third day he was raised from the dead. And that glimpse of glory from the Mount of Transfiguration has been shining in an unfading way ever since. Now, maybe you hear about God's mercy, and maybe you hear even about Jesus, and you've heard it all before, maybe many times because you've been in church all your life, but you just don't get it. You just don't see it. Well, the Bible tells us that the problem is actually a veil, not not a physical veil like Moses wore that hid the glory that reflected off him from the people, but a spiritual veil. A veil that's actually over the heart. So the heart can't see 
Jesus for who he really is. The Apostle Paul says, But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you hear the Bible read, you hear the Bible taught, but you just don't see it. I hear it, but I just can't see it. I just don't see this as clearly as everyone else is seeing it. I even see how you say Moses is a great mediator, and Jesus, yeah, he's a greater mediator for all the reasons you say. I mean, I hear all of that. I understand it, but I just don't see it. I just don't see it. It doesn't shine with luster and glory like it seems to for so many people around me. That's me. I read the Bible, and it's, it's like something's there just keeping me from seeing it. Well, Paul addresses that too, doesn't he? In the very next verse, he says, When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Will you turn to the Lord? To turn away from everything you've been living for? And turn to Jesus? Turn from the world's way of thinking. Turn from your own way of thinking. Submit to Jesus. Follow Jesus. Believe in Jesus. If you will, 2 Corinthians 3.16 says, The veil will be removed. When anyone turns to the Lord in faith, the veil is removed. And you will see everything differently, especially Jesus. Just a few verses later, he says this, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, those who have turned to the Lord, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You'll see him. Blessed are those who believe who have not seen yet. But when you believe, you'll see it. Jesus is actually glorious. He's actually beautiful. He's actually wonderful. I'll leave anything for him. He's the one. He's it. He's everything. But until you turn, the veil will just be there. And you will not see. Because Christianity is not an intellectual or philosophical exercise. It is a spiritual reality. Whereby the power of God breaks into the life of an individual. And radically changes everything. And brings light. And brings hope. And brings mercy. You see, if you'll turn to the Lord Jesus in faith, the facts, the facts of Exodus 32 to 34 will actually break into the experience of your life. You will feel the facts. You will know and understand and cherish the truth of these chapters that God gives mercy to his sinful people. Don't wait. 
turn to the Lord. Have the veil removed. See your Savior and embrace him. Let's pray. Our Father, we...